Hello and good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Thank you very much again for joining us for a next installation, Talking with Gert van den Bosch. And we also have Dr. Rob Rennenbaum as well with us. Now, listen, I have had the tremendous privilege of talking to Gert, probably the most, more than anyone else, because I've had probably six or seven interviews with Gert. And all I can tell you is that his thinking and his application of science is second to none. And this is why I trusted then what he said and still trust what he is likely to say now. We've got as well, Dr. Rob Renenbaum has been working diligently looking at Gert's research for quite a while, over a year. I've interviewed him a year ago, and he's focused on looking at it and applying his clinical knowledge to be able to bring the science together. So it's with great pleasure that I have with me both Gert and Rob. Uh, how are you all doing at the moment? You're fine. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. So I'll just start off with you again, Gert. I'll ask you to do a quick introduction, and then I'll ask Rob to do the same. Okay. Well, uh, first of all, Philip, thanks for uh, having me and also Rob uh, again on uh, on this show. Uh, my background is uh, veterinary medicine, and after a few years of uh, clinical practice, I uh, switched to virology, uh, specialized in virology, molecular biology, uh, immunology. Stayed for a number of years uh, in, uh, well, about 10 years uh, in academia, and then moved on to the uh, vaccine industry, where I worked as well in uh, late development as in early development, so research department where I was responsible uh, primarily for uh, heading up the adjuvant platform and also the platform on uh, alternative delivery uh, technologies. Uh, so this was primarily my function uh, with uh, three uh, major uh, pharmaceutical companies, uh, vaccine companies. And uh, after another 15 years about, or um, a little bit less, um, with industry, I changed uh, to the global health uh, industry, worked with the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in Seattle, where I was a senior program uh, uh, officer, uh, basically scrutinizing uh, all the uh, proposals that uh, brilliant people were submitting to the foundation to get uh, grants on new vaccine technologies. And uh, I also worked um, for uh, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization in, uh, in Geneva, uh, so Gavi, where I was the um, uh, Ebola program manager uh, a number of years ago, I think six, seven years ago, when the Ebola crisis hit uh, West Africa. And, uh, well, in parallel, I uh, was also doing uh, consultancy, working on uh, a new uh, platform uh, based on uh, natural killer cell-based uh, vaccines. So uh, I felt I was pretty well prepared when the uh, pandemic hit. And, uh, well, since uh, I would say um, 2020, approximately, I focused uh, entirely on analyzing the pandemic, especially from uh, the evolutionary viewpoint, so the evolutionary dynamics of both the virus and the uh, immune system. Over. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you very much, Gert. And, and Rob, tell us a little bit about yourself as well. 
Well, I'm a pediatrician and a pediatric rheumatologist. Uh, rheumatology focuses on autoimmune diseases and study of the immune system. Uh, I've been a pediatrician for over 50 years and a pediatric rheumatologist for 43 years. I spent the bulk of my career as uh, chief of the pediatric rheumatology service at Nationwide Children's Hospital at Ohio State University. Before that, I was at uh, Cincinnati Children's Hospital. After that, I was at Alberta Children's Hospital in Canada. And then I finished my career <clears throat> up at the Cleveland Clinic, where I primarily focused on uh, a very rare autoimmune disease called SUSAC syndrome. And I officially retired in 2018, but uh, for the past three years, I've been uh, spending full time, really, uh, studying and writing about the COVID situation, because I realized that these um, COVID issues are extremely complex. And I also realized that uh, practicing physicians have really not had much time to to study and do the homework that's necessary to understand what's going on uh, with the pandemic. Excellent. So that's what I've been focusing on more recently. Excellent. Yeah. So it, it brings us to, I guess, an important starting point, Gert, which is that when you first started and we had our first interview in, in March, 2021, and you were quite confident then that there was a, a grave danger with regards to mass vaccinations across the world. Has anything happened that would temper your view then as to what you think now? Uh, <clears throat> the answer is very clear, uh, Philippe, absolutely not. Uh, I have uh, explained in, in my book, because that is what people are saying, of course, yeah, Gerd, you... Uh, you were announcing kind of catastrophe and it didn't happen. And uh, I realized study, uh, studying in depth this complex phenomenon, as Rob was just saying, that uh, I had uh, been neglecting, in fact, uh, a very aspect, a very important aspect, immunological aspect, by which, uh, in fact, the immune system was capable of delaying the immune escape phenomenon. And uh, so that is why, uh, in fact, uh, the timeline for what I have been predicting with uh, certainty, for me at least, uh, was delayed. But the outcome is still exactly, exactly the same. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to bring in Rob here on a, on a question, <laughs> and it's, it's tied to what you had said and, and I'm basing this from observing comments on YouTube and elsewhere. A lot of people are very upset with the scientific and the medical community for not raising questions and, and, and not asking questions, it appears. What is your thought about that? And would you have been different if you were working actively at the time now? Well... I think a very fundamental principle of science and medicine is that all plausible hypotheses need to be welcomed and strongly considered. And the way to do that is to have a thoughtful, respectful 
science-based dialogue amongst scientists and physicians to evaluate those hypotheses. And, uh, <clears throat> and I think to a great extent that hasn't happened. There's been largely silence regarding Geert's uh, analysis and the concerns that he has expressed and the hypotheses that he's offered and the conclusions that he has offered. So I have always felt strongly that it's very important to take analyses like Geert's extremely seriously and at least subject them to uh, uh, careful dialogue. And uh, I think in Geert's case, his analysis has been extremely important uh, and extremely valuable. And I think it's been based on a very deep understanding of immunology and virology and vaccinology and evolutionary biology and all of the fields that need to be considered when we evaluate this pandemic and particularly when we evaluate the issue of whether our interventions with these vaccines uh, might have an adverse effect uh, on the course of the pandemic and have consequences. So I have felt very strongly that it's important to take excellent analyses uh, like Geert's very seriously and act on them. And I feel very strongly that patients and physicians and the public at large deserves to know about Geert's concerns in detail and they deserve to have some help in understanding what he's talking about and what he's concerned about and why he is so worried. Uh, patients uh, uh, deserve to, to be informed of, of uh, his analysis so that they can plan in advance in case he's correct. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> we owe that to patients and their physicians and the public at large. Now, there can be uh, considerable disagreement as to how certain we can be that Geert's predictions will or will not come true. Um, Geert feels very strongly uh, on, on very sound bases scientifically that his worries are uh, very valid and he's extremely worried that his predictions will come true. Other uh, scientists may disagree. Um, they, may they might think, well, there's a 50-50 chance that what Geert is talking about might happen. Others might say, well, maybe a 25% chance. Others might uh, deny that there's any chance of that happening at all. Uh, personally, my own conclusion is that uh, I think there's enough information uh, available, thanks largely to Geert, uh, to be very concerned and the, the likelihood of a worrisome variant emerging, I think, is sufficiently great to warrant our uh, making the effort to plan in advance for that possibility. Mm. Uh, I would rather people not be caught by surprise 
uh, and then panic and, and have no uh, proactive plan for how they're going to deal with such a virulent variant. Uh, I would rather that they be informed in advance, that they have a chance to meet with their physicians and uh, work out a plan of action in case uh, what Geard is predicting actually happens. Um, and uh, that's going to require some advanced effort. Yeah. And it certainly starts with informing people of the possibility. So in my view, uh, <clears throat> even if you don't think this is uh, more than a 50-50 chance, even if you disagree with Geert's level of certainty on this, at the very least, we need to discuss these issues and we need to uh, at least strongly consider proactive anticipatory planning. Yeah, I, I think you're right. That's what we call a SWOT analysis. These are the threats uh, when you look at it from that point of view. So, um, Gert, when, when, let's just go into where you at the moment feel things are likely to go. What really do you think is likely to happen next? Because the WHO has said the pandemic is over. This has technically now become an endemic cold. Why would you still be concerned? <clears throat> yeah, well, it, uh, Philip, it, it starts, in fact, uh, indeed, with uh, scrutinizing this type of statements, which, frankly speaking, I cannot understand. But knowing that the top management of the WHO is completely, completely scientifically incompetent, I'm nevertheless not surprised about this stupid statement because everyone can see that with regard to um, the, the pandemic, well, first of all, it's very clear that we have no sterilizing immunity. That's very clear. So um, at an individual level, that means that you will still have a, a significant amount of symptomatic infections at an individual level. That is, is that what we are seeing? Yes, that is what we are seeing. We still have considerable amount of symptomatic infection. At the population level, this would mean that you don't have herd immunity, right? So practically speaking, that would mean that the transmission of the virus is not under control. Is the transmission of the virus under control? No, the transmission of the virus is not under control. On top of this, it's also very, very clear that the virus continues to evolve. Eh? So the virus has already been uh, evolving from uh, no longer being, you know, uh, neutralizable to uh, being, uh, you know, more infectious and, uh, and even in vitro more virulent. So the virus is, is clearly still evolving. All this goes completely, completely against the idea or the concept of the pandemic being over. And um, so that's where it starts. If the pandemic is not over, if the virus continues to evolve, if there are still some symptomatic infections and if the transmission is still going on, the next question is, of course, where is this going? And um, depending on, uh, on your next question, Philip, I will just tell you that for me it is very very clear 
that the virus has now engaged in the last straight line to increasing its virulence. And you can, and, and it's a, a, a quite slow process, but what we can see compared to um, the, previous, the previous observations with the pre-Omicron variants and even with the early Omicron variants is that the infectivity of the virus is no longer dramatically increasing. So it seems like that kind of potential of the virus has been exhausted, right? So, um, but the virus can still replicate. Right? We, 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 we don't control the virus. You know, parties, pro-vax, anti-vax, etc., are trying to control each other, right? But nobody's controlling the virus. And nobody seems to care about this, right? And, uh, and that is what I'm very, very worried uh, about because um, based on the uh, molecular principles and immunological insights that I've described in my book, for me, there is absolutely no doubt that the, um, the, the prevention of severe disease that is right now, according to my understanding, conditioned by non-neutralizing antibodies will completely wane and that, uh, as we have seen for Omicron, remember, Omicron came all of a sudden for many people out of the blue, completely unexpected, very suddenly, that we will very suddenly see a steep increase in hospitalizations and severe disease. And by the way, in some countries, we are already seeing that these rates are picking up again, that they are increasing, right? So all this may be, uh, you know, sufficient as a first answer to your question, why am I worried and what I'm thinking uh, is, is going on with the virus right now? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking just about the virus. I, I think that the rest of the world is simply focusing on the wrong thing right now. The thing to focus upon is the evolution of the virus. Because if that doesn't go the right way, it will affect all of us, right? So that is, that is something that uh, I think doesn't gain enough attention right now because people think, you know, uh, Philip, I, could, I, could, I would be the best pronoun, a proponent of uh, defending the, the narrative. Guys, what are you worried about? You know, hospitalization rates, severe disease, mortality, it's all under control. Measures have been uh, relaxed. Uh, the spread of the virus has diminished. Uh, so we are entering into a phase of endemicity. No, we are entering in a phase of disastrous immune escape. That is my conclusion and interpretation. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Rob, I, I want you because of your wonderful pediatric expertise as well. I want you to what you've heard there with Gert. Imagine explaining that again in a very simple way. How what is he really? I mean, just in case some people didn't get it, I think that I want you to just say it again in a quick summary. Can you do that? Well, that's what I've tried to do in my video presentation. Uh, this is a very complex situation, but I think what Geert is saying is that we are experiencing a calm before the storm. It's a reassuring calm, 
I think he's pointing out that those who think the pandemic is subsiding and, he and heading into endemicity because the virus seems to be becoming milder and milder and less of a threat, I think what they are missing, uh, Geert is saying, is that they don't realize that uh, our immune system in a variety of ways and in three main ways that Geert has highlighted in his book, the immune system has been protecting us over these, particularly during the Omicron era. It has figured out some mechanisms that uh, protect us uh, to a certain degree from severe disease. Uh, but what he's saying is that those protective mechanisms uh, will ultimately fail. <clears throat> the virus will ultimately uh, overcome those protective mechanisms. And, uh, and the biggest threat is that the virus will overcome the, the protection against virulence of the disease. Uh, one thing that Geert explains in great detail is that the non-neutralizing antibodies that the vaccine induces um, uh, do have a virulence inhibiting effect. They can uh, protect us from infection in the lower respiratory tract or such severe infection in the lower respiratory tract. But what he's saying is that the virus ultimately is going to be able to overcome that virulence inhibiting effect of the, of the uh, non-neutralizing antibodies. And when that happens, uh, we will no longer have that protection. So, and yeah, so it's pausing you on that there, Gert, and just bringing back Gert to this question. In everything, as, as uh, Rob was saying earlier, there is percentages, you know, 75, 50. If you were to pick a percentage, Gert, when you think of that transition, where would you put it? Is this a medium risk, low risk, high risk, inevitable? Well, as you know, uh, as you know, uh, Philip, I'm uh, I'm 200% convinced of this, and you know we can we can do a little bit of a scientific reasoning, and I will go slowly in order for you know your audience to capture this. If that's not sufficient, I'm sure that Rob can help. But you know, I think we all agree. We all agree that the um, you know immune system population immunity right now is giving the virus a difficult time. We were just saying, you know, spread has diminished. There is less, uh, there is still, you know, a reasonable amount of protection against severe disease, even against disease, etc. So that is very, very difficult uh, for the virus. So the only thing the virus can do <clears throat> is, so to say, become more infectious. But as I was just pointing out, I think that level of infectiousness, when you see, you know, it, it dramatically increased, of course, with Omicron. Then we had late Omicron variants where the infectivity still increased a little bit, but now it has kind of reached a plateau. So the question is, what is the virus going to do now to ensure its continued propagation in the context and on a background 
of you know an immune response that makes its life very very difficult the only way the virus can solve this at this point is by enhancing the transmission the transmission so that means that viral clearance so that is killing of virus infected cells that this clearance needs to be diminished how can that happen could this happen well you have to know i am describing this in my book that an important mechanism for viral clearance is non neutralizing antibodies attaching to the virus and enhancing its uptake by antigen presenting cells that induce cytolytic T cells the cytolytic T cells are the killer cells that can destroy virus infected cells so that killer function is right now pretty strong that is the reason why we see less spread of the virus that is also the reason why imagine uh, a large part of the vaccinated population is now even protected against disease so how can this be diminished this can only be diminished if the non neutralizing vaccine induced antibodies diminish then the virus will be less easily taken up by these antigen presenting cells to activate the cytolytic t cells but when this happens automatically and i'm also explaining this in my book the non neutralizing antibodies that are right now inhibiting virulence will also diminish these two phenomena are intrinsically connected so the vaccine diminishment of the vaccine induced antibodies that used to neutralize the virus is intrinsically linked to diminished activation of non neutralizing antibodies the polyreactive antibodies but so when this is linked automatically this means that the virulence inhibiting effect will disappear because the polyreactive non neutralizing antibodies or the antibodies that are right now protecting vaccinees against severe disease so the question is are the vaccine induced antibody titers right now diminishing i am not aware of a survey of a whole population to monitor this and see on average whether the titers have diminished what i do know is that neither the recurrent uh, infections with the circulating virus nor booster vaccinations can still boost these vaccine induced antibodies so they must decline i'm sure that they are declining when they decline automatically the virulence inhibiting effect of the polyreactive non neutralizing antibodies will diminish as well and yeah. that is how diminished titers of vaccine induced potentially neutralizing antibodies is intrinsically linked to a gradual decrease in the titers of the virulence inhibiting antibodies and therefore is going to make it more easy for the virus to select immune escape variants 
that will completely escape to this inhibiting effect. And that I, is I, where we will have the enhanced virulence. I want to ask a question here because sometimes I, I'm observing the comments people are making and this one here it jumped out at me and I'll, I'll put this here. This is not the only virus in the world. Why is this not occurring with the other viruses that are circulating, the RSV, the influenzas, the, um, and so on? Why is this primarily, why is this concern primarily with the, that COVID-19 coronavirus? I thought that was a good question. Any thoughts on it? Well, it's, it's, it's not a thought. It is not limited. If you want, Philip, it has nothing to do with coronavirus. It has to do, for God's sake, with us, you know, doing mass vaccination during a pandemic and driving immune escape. Remember, all these evolutions that we are seeing right now at the population level have started when we, you know, implemented the mass vaccination program, where we have seen, for example, the Omicrons, where we have seen the early variants, where we have seen the later variants that were directed against other uh, epitopes. Remember, the antibody responses, the immune responses induced by Omicron did not boost the vaccine responses. And these antibody responses were no longer protecting protective even not against the new Omicron variants. So that is where the shift in the focusing of the immune response took place. And this is how the virus continued to evolve till we had these higher infectious strains like the XBBs and the, the BQs, etc. And where, where in fact the virulence inhibiting effect all of a sudden appear. This is a phenomenon that we have not seen. Would you do the same thing with influenza? You would get exactly to the same depth. I, this does not apply to all viruses. It would apply to all pandemics of acute self-limiting viral infections, acute self-limiting viral infections, where we would do this type of vaccination, mass vaccination, you know, whole populations during a pandemic. So Corona is just one of the examples of an acute self-limiting infection. Yes, Robert. Yes, go ahead, Rob. I, I was just so, going to bring yeah, you in. Yeah. If I may, uh, <clears throat> uh, a couple of things that you just said, Geert, might be confusing to some of the viewers. Um, on the one hand, I think you were saying that eventually the non-neutralizing antibodies that have a virulence inhibiting effect will eventually wane and decrease. Yes. Uh, per particularly, I imagine, if fewer and fewer people get vaccinated and boosted. Um, and, so, and so you said that on that basis alone, people, those, the, those people that have had those protective antibodies will lose that protection or will have much less protection from that. And on that basis alone, they will be vulnerable to more severe infection. But on the other hand, you also said, <clears throat> and have said in the past, that the virus itself will overcome those virulence inhibiting antibodies uh, uh, by developing a glycosylation change uh, that will allow them to overcome or bypass 
that particular virulence inhibiting effect of those antibodies. So those are two different mechanisms mm. for why people will, will yeah. become more severely yeah. ill. But, but one other point. Um, These are not two different mechanisms, but go, go, go ahead. Uh, okay, go ahead. Well, these are not two different uh, mechanisms because when you uh, when you diminish the level and the concentration of these antibodies, you will make it easier for an appropriate mutant to get selected and overcome this increased immune selection pressure. Remember, this is the same thing that we have at the beginning of the pandemic. We started vaccinating people. The levels of the antibodies and the maturity of these antibodies was not sufficient to really stop the transmission. And because of this suboptimal, the suboptimal levels, we were putting immune selection pressure on the virus. Here, when the titers decline of the virus inhibiting antibodies, we will put suboptimal pressure on the virus and as I was saying, the virus can no longer overcome this with enhanced infectivity. That, that potential is kind of like exhausted. So it is now most likely, according to my humble opinion, going to make changes in the glycosylation to do that job. And unfortunately, everybody continues doing the profiling of the peptides and the amino acid mutations, etc. What I would like to see is of the variants that are now circulating, the evolution of the glycosylation profile, the O-glycosylation sites, to see whether and how strongly this is evolving. Well, again, I think the confusion then is that I think a lot of people have the notion that as fewer and fewer people are getting boosted or, or vaccinated, um, that and as those virulence inhibiting antibodies decline, they have the notion that that will put less immune pressure on the virus uh, because they they understand that if you have a lot of immune pressure on the virus, it, it will then learn to escape that pressure. And so they're thinking that if, if those uh, virulence inhibiting antibodies decline, they're thinking that that puts less immune pressure on the virus and, and thereby makes it less likely that the virus will, will become no, virulent. So well, the, the, the best opportunities and chances for the virus, you know, you have to see this like this. If the titers of the non-neutralizing antibodies are very high, I mean, there is no way for the, for the, the virus to move into overcoming this, right? It's under control. The virulence is under control. But the point that people might make, and that is an important point, is, oh, if that is the case, we should get boosted again. We should get revaccinated because that is going to increase again the titers and we will again be able to control the virulence of the virus. And there I'm saying, unfortunately, the boosters... The additional vaccination, even with updated, uh, updated Omicron variants, and even the recurrent infections with the circulating virus, do no longer do no longer boost the uh, the vaccine-induced antibodies, and that is a problem. So, 
unfortunately, they are going to decline. And I would love to see surveys of the titer of these antibodies done in, you know, a representative amount of people in a certain highly vaccinated population. So yeah, it's the yeah. suboptimal level of those virulence inhibiting yes. antibodies that yes. puts immune pressure on the virus. Exactly, exactly. Okay. exactly. So, so I guess one of the points that's coming through in the comments, as I said, I'm seeing them, is that people are asking, because quite a number of people are unvaccinated, what does that mean for them? You know, it, will their immunity, their mucosal immunity be adequate, even if the virus then becomes more virulent? What does this mean for the evolution for the different groups? Well, it's very, very clear. I mean, Philip, you hear me saying that it is all a problem of the immune status of the vaccinees. You know, I repeated this multiple times. I, you know, it's... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not. I've never done this. And on the contrary, uh, I would never discriminate, uh, you know, people because they are vaccinated. But there is one thing that is undeniable, undeniable. That is that the vaccine status, that the immune status right now of a thoroughly vaccinated person is completely, completely different from the immune status of an unvaccinated uh, individual. And to your point, so this whole problem, you know, generating non-neutralizing virulence inhibiting antibodies, etc., all these shifts that we have been seen in the immune response have not occurred in the unvaccinated. Why not? Because their first line, the first line of immune defense before anything of this adaptive stuff could ever happen, has been so strongly trained and you know induced sterilizing immunity that this doesn't happen, has not happened. So the only thing that could threaten, potentially, but it's not going to be the case, the unvaccinated, is when the virus would become more infectious. Because then its trained status may not be sufficient to deal with a virus that is even more infectious than the precedent ones, against which the innate immune system uh, has, has trained. But as I was saying, this is not happening because the virus has exhausted, obviously, its potential of accrued infectivity and is now rather shifting to enhancing transmission by the mechanism that I just explained. So in a nutshell, I've always said it, never said anything else. There is, of course, for a healthy, unvaccinated person, absolutely, absolutely no problem whatsoever with this, right? And so where where we are now, and one of the, the questions, I want to ask Rob this here, because I, I, I struggle to understand why the scientific community is still holding the line and not actually starting to ask the difficult questions. What is stopping them? Is it is that pride? Is that just the fact that um, peer review studies are coming out which, which discount this and they just can't accept anything else? What is stopping the scientific community from becoming cognizant and at least just thinking about these possible potentials, Rob? Well, I think physicians need and deserve to have 
the opportunity to learn from people like Geert. Uh, most physicians do not have a deep, deep understanding of immunology, virology, and vaccinology. Uh, most physicians have a relatively superficial understanding of those fields compared to someone like Geert. And so they need the help of someone like Geert. They need that they need to have grand rounds presentations where uh, Geert's analysis is uh, presented and other experts in the field uh, can uh, tease it apart, challenge it, uh, correct it if they think it needs to be corrected or explain what they agree with and don't agree with. That kind of dialogue has not occurred during the entire pandemic. In fact, it's been discouraged. Uh, <clears throat> and I think that's, that's why physicians uh, have, have taken the easier route, which is to assume that the prevailing narrative and the supporters of the mass vaccination campaign uh, uh, know what they're doing, have thought it through very thoroughly and understand it very deeply and are doing the right thing. And so their obligation is to support that. That's a huge assumption. And <clears throat> that's why uh, taking all hypotheses and all uh, responsible analyses uh, into consideration and, de and debating them is so important in science and medicine. If you do not do that, if you only allow one prevailing understanding and, and you uh, discourage and even punish any other challenges to it, that's when you get into troubles. <clears throat> so I think that's where we are. And that's, that's why physicians have, uh, uh, have not learned what uh, Geert has been trying to uh, explain to them. I think Garrett would be the first to say that he wishes he could have uh, substantial uh, debate and discussion with other experts in the field uh, <clears throat> because he's had to pretty much develop this analysis on his own. He hasn't had the benefit of feedback. Well, what about this gear? Did you take this into consideration? What about this paper? Uh, are you sure you understand this correctly? I have a different understanding. Let me share it with you. Let's work together and try to figure out the most accurate understanding of what's going on. He hasn't had the benefit of that. He's had to do this pretty much alone. It's very, very complex. Uh, so that's, again, why it is so important to have uh, respectful rigorous dialogue on these issues, and that has not happened. And it's unrealistic to expect physicians who are busily practicing medicine uh, to take the time <clears throat> to learn all of this on their own. Yeah. I, think, I think you made the comment earlier that it's mostly retired physicians who have seemed to be uh, taking a deep dive into this pandemic. And that's very true because even though we're retired, we're still interested, we're still concerned, we still have a physician's mentality, we still believe in patient education, informed consent, <clears throat> and anticipatory guidance. We can't uh, stop having that mentality. And we have the time, fortunately, 
to uh, take a deep dive into this. It raises the point, Gert, is that we're two and a half years into the vaccination part of the pandemic. You know, you I think people would have thought by now that uh, some of the colleagues, the experts across the world would have reached out to have these kinds of conversations. What's going on? Well, yeah, Philip, what is going on, as uh, Rob was uh, saying, this is, this is very, very complex. And, you know, um, modesty is important, right? And I think that once people have gotten this, these big names, right, and this big reputation for some reason, right? I mean, in most cases... But then it seems like everything stops and also uh, the expansion of their knowledge stops. And I'm really speaking for the, for the vaccine field because, you know, to put it bluntly, I mean, we have miserably, miserably failed in the field of vaccinology. The only thing we are capable of doing is making prophylactic vaccines against acute self-limiting infections. That's 90%. Of course, we have a, you know, a vaccine against hepatitis uh, B and uh, human papillomavirus, but it's only provided we can administer those vaccines before exposure, that we can capture the virus before it enters into the target cells, that, that this works, just like a drug, basically, just like a drug, right? So there are... There is fundamental, the, 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 the immune system and the interaction with the pathogen is so complex and the immune pathogenesis, if it goes beyond neutralizing antibodies, is simply not understood. That is also my conclusion, having seen tons of proposals from, you know, uh, world-renowned scientists, professors, Nobel Prize winners, you know, that submitted their proposals to the Gates Foundation for vaccines. And I had just, you know, to put them in, in the trash because it was just, you know, not completely scientifically unreasonable. These people have forgotten that the science nowadays, as Rob was pointing out, for these complex problems is not to be a top virologist or a top immunologist or a top vaccinologist. It is, it's not because you have written a superb book on vaccines that you have the right to talk here. Because if you are not knowledgeable enough about immunology, about evolutionary vaccine, uh, biology and, and, and so on, then of course uh, it becomes very, very difficult. And I'm not saying that you need to be a top expert. I'm certainly not a top expert in all these fields, but I'm a problem solver. I'm trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together. These people are not doing that. And they realize that they cannot explain what is happening right now. Nobody can explain. I challenge them all what is happening right now. How can you, for God's sake, explain that people are still protected against disease or severe disease when the vaccine-induced antibodies don't even work, right? So come on, there, there must be something else. Ask them, Philip, what it is that protects people. You will be left with no answer. I, I, I you know, so the, the knowledge is simply, and people are feeling very uncomfortable 
because it is no longer within their field of expertise. They feel something else is going on, but all the, the certainty, what they want to stick to is the, their uh, paradigms, right? Their dogmas, etc. And therefore, if people don't open their mind to, to listen to jerks like myself, right? They don't open their mind. They don't want to think out of the box. They do not accept scientifically plausible, not proven, but plausible hypotheses that are not contradicted by what we are observing. Then we will not make any, any progress in this field. This is a very conservative field, you know, with people having their opinions carved in stone, feeling protected amongst themselves because they're sticking to the same paradigm. And, uh, you know, it's always the same. When you go against mainstream, right, I mean, you encounter uh, plenty of people who simply saying, well, you know, I, or, or they are going to question you on several different elements of the hypothesis. Whereas the hypothesis has only value, adds only value, if you consider all the different aspects of it. Every single element in its own can, of course, be criticized. But when it fits together in a way that matches the observation, that is scientifically plausible, that does not violate the rules of the disciplines that are involved in virology and immunology and vaccinology and evolutionary biology, then you have a strong case. But people have not learned this. This is deductive science. People want to go to their lab do what they are good at, their T-cells and their B-cells, and draw conclusions based on the few experiments that I, ha I have done. This is no longer going to be sufficient to solve complex problems like this one. And that is why we see that there is reticence, that uh, people remain silent. Uh, of course, there is less fact-checking. We see this, right? And, uh, you know, people come with uh, theories like, uh, yeah, T-cells protect, etc. right? Uh, all this kind of... And, we are now we we are now the ones who need to do the fact checking. Say, you know, guys. I mean, look what's happening. Look really what is happening. This can no longer be explained by the conventional dogmas and uh, and paradigms, right? Something else is happening, and if that would ring a bell, we would already be, you know, a huge step, better, uh, a huge step in the, in the right direction. But you know, even that is not happening right now. Yeah. So, Rob, um, yeah, I want you to, to say as we, we prepare, as we're coming towards the close, I want you to put together what you think Gert is saying. And then I'm going to be asking Gert to finish off what his main message would be. So what go ahead and make your point as well, Gert. I mean, Rob. Well, I was just going to make the point going back to the tradition of medicine, which is to have rigorous dialogue about complex issues. If scientists and physicians disagree with Geert and feel he his hypotheses are wrong or he's getting this wrong or that wrong, uh, <clears throat> then uh, it would be very helpful to have a point-by-point -point explanation of where they think he is wrong uh, and, and what their alternative explanation is for this or that point. And unfortunately, that hasn't happened. Instead, we've essentially gotten silence and there has not been this kind of rigorous dialogue. So one of my major suggestions is that we we need to have that dialogue. 
Mm. And that's moving forward. And so based on where you see uh, Gert talking at the moment, are you also anxious about the future, Rob? Yes. As I said earlier, I've seen enough and learned enough uh, to be very concerned uh, that uh, we need to take this possible uh, scenario that Geert uh, explains very seriously. Uh, there's there's enough information to suggest that we we need to proactively uh, prepare for that possibility. That 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 uh, is in keeping with anticipatory the practice of anticipatory medicine. So yes, I think Geert's analysis uh, uh, provides plenty of reason to move forward in encouraging patients and physicians and hospitals and health departments uh, to make plans uh, for uh, in advance uh, for what can be done to give people the best chance, particularly the most vulnerable. Uh, <clears throat> and as Geert has pointed out, the highly vaccinated are are more vulnerable than the healthy unvaccinated. Uh, but I, I think uh, for sure we need to encourage proactive planning for how we will deal with uh, this scenario that Geert is very worried and justifiably so uh, uh, that might occur. Excellent. Thank you, Rob. And Gert, um, your final words, advice, thoughts? to the audience? Yeah, well, my final uh, advice is simply to be pragmatic because I always said, you know, it's not about me, it's not about us, it's, uh, it's, it's really about what the virus is doing and about the message. So uh, for me, uh, the debate who is wrong, who is right, and uh, explain this point and we will discuss here and there, for me, frankly speaking, it will come too late, right? And um, I said, even stopping all the mass vaccination today, it, it won't help. Uh, I have explained this multiple times. Uh, with the advent of Omicron, we have achieved uh, a point of no return, simply because Omicron is maintaining, is self-fueling the immune escape, right? So to be pragmatic, uh, you know, for the unvaccinated people, health-wise, health-wise, you know, there is no issue. I don't see any issue, really. Uh, of course, they should continue living a healthy life. That's very clear. For uh, the vaccinated people, I mean, uh, I must strongly advise that when they see that what I'm predicting becomes very manifest, because some people think that the increase that we are seeing right now in some countries in hospitalization rates and severe disease, it's, it's still not worrisome, etc. But if it is going to incline the way I'm predicting it, then it will be, become obvious for everyone. And then I would really recommend all vaccinated people to take antivirals prophylactically, prophylactically, because what we are going to see and, you know, people can write this down, is fewer cases of long COVID, but more cases of short COVID. And with short, I mean really short, right? So that is my 
pragmatic advice. Uh, can we do anything else? Will lockdowns, it's it? No, they will not help because you will look up people uh, who are the source of the problem, right? So not, that, that will not help. And secondarily, I, uh, yeah, I was also planning on organizing with the Alliance for Natural Health with Rob Kirk some masterclasses on pandemics and epidemics because I really would like to appeal to the younger people, young scientists, young medical doctors, and everyone with an open mind to go through, you know, the several hypotheses, not in order for me to prove them that I'm right, but, you know, for them to encourage them to think deeply about this so that next time around, or that this next generation is better prepared for a discussion as Rob was saying, is open, still with a critical mind, but open to listening and to sharing other opinions and insights about such complex problems. I think that really uh, needs to happen, but unfortunately, we will need to start with the upcoming generation. I don't think it's still going to be possible with the current establishment. Over. Yeah. Go ahead, I would Rob. emphasize, though, uh, that it is, it's not too late to at least prepare in some way uh, for when and if uh, this more virulent variant appears on the scene. There's a lot of things that people can do individually and collectively uh, to prepare for that eventuality. If it doesn't happen, fine. At least we've, we've made preparatory plans. But certainly if it uh, does happen, we will look back and be glad that we made some proactive plans. Excellent. Yes, I, I've put up the links for both Gert and Rob. Um, so for Gert, it's uh, voiceforscienceandsolidarity.org. Um, and that, that you can find more information about Gert there. And certainly for the recent presentation as well from Rob, notesfromthesocialclinic.org um, would be very valuable to see. And uh, listen, I can only say as we come to the end, for those who want to understand the science, as, as Rob has so clearly said, everything is about preparation. Even if you disagree with Gert, do the homework, check the threats, put it down as being maybe not so, um, um, not so likely. But if you haven't looked at it, and if you haven't addressed it, and if it's not part of that SWOT analysis, I think then that that's where governments and institutions would have done a disservice to their population. So again, thank you very, very much, gentlemen. I'm sure I'm going to be having you back again at some point. Um, and let's hope, um, you know, Gert, let's hope you're wrong. I really, yes, let's hope so, because if you are right, There'll be nothing good that we'll be saying at that point, you know. But yes, let's keep ourselves educated, keep ourselves informed, and continue to do the research. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Philip. Okay.